Well, thank you, Wayne, and, and welcome, you know, new family members. We're really grateful to, uh, to have you and to welcome you into our family. It is a, it is a significant thing for us, and um, we don't take that lightly, as Wayne explained. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We'll be beginning uh, sort of the second half of Isaiah this morning. For those of you uh, whom I've not had the ch chance to meet yet, if we haven't had a chance to connect, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the pastors here at Riverside Community Church and a member of the Gills Creek Small Group. Um, and I'm, I am prayerful that the Holy Spirit will continue to work among us this morning. I have heard good things about the Spirit's stirring the hearts of many students and faculty at CIU last week. And uh, we'll pray that the Spirit uh, shares some of that good work among us this morning and throughout the week. But I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 40, the whole chapter. And uh, I do encourage you to have a Bible. It will be on the screen, but as we'll be working through this text together this morning, it will be helpful to have it in your hands. Isaiah, the prophet, writes to a later audience. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Whom who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. 
He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understanding from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like the stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes, your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because of he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard, have you not seen, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths will faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary, walk and not grow faint. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'm going to address briefly the boys and girls among us this morning who are here to share your communion. Um, with us and to worship with us this morning. Now, some stories are told for entertainment, and, and that's fine. Some, some stories are told as an example to follow, and some stories are told as a warning not to follow. This is one of those. When I was a kid, a little bit older than m probably many of you, I was old enough to have a bank account, but not old enough to have much sense. <laughs> my friend Noah, my best friend Noah, called me up and said, James, Let's run away from home. And at first I thought, what? But then as he painted this picture of life on the road, <laughs> walking railroad tracks, sleeping out under the stars, eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I thought, this is great. Two hours later, we had our bags packed, and we were walking the Melbourne Causeway from the beach to West Melbourne. By about nightfall, we found ourselves eating pizza in sub-pub. We were going to sleep outside, it was a pretty temperate night, but there were some shady characters kind of showing up uh, in, in, in that part of the town, and so we thought, let's get a hotel room. I had $120 in my savings account from birthday gifts, doing my chores, getting my weekly allowance. I thought, I'm, I'm good, I'm covered. When we inquired what the price for one room was, we realized very quickly, this will not last. To make a really long story short, six hours after leaving home, Noah and I called our moms to pick us up. <laughs> we, we were not prepared. Neither Noah was prepared to back his vision of life on the road, nor was I prepared to live life on the road. What this text teaches us is that God is, unlike my friend Noah, he offers us great promises that he can back up. 
And not only is he so great, so wise, so strong as to back up those great promises to us, he's so big and so good, he can even give us, us who are weak and frail and have not much money in our savings accounts, even us, he can give strength and stamina to, to experience those promises realized in our lives, to see them come to fruition. That's how good and how strong of a God he is to us. So I'm going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to behold our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word because in it we find, yes, warnings, but also words of great comfort and joy for us. Lord, help us to hear them, to receive this comfort and joy that you give us. And may we have strength as we wait on you. Would you give power to us who are weak? May your spirit anoint us this morning with your strength. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. As I said, this is the beginning of sort of the second half of Isaiah. Some scholars call it Deutero-Isaiah because it's so markedly different than the first 39 chapters in various ways. First, there's a clear transition from the tone. The first 39 chapters really emphasize warning of coming judgment. And as chapter 40 exemplifies, the following chapters of 40 on at least to 55, certainly to the end of 66, uh, speak words of consolation and comfort, as well as some words of warning, as we'll see. There's also a major transition in the historical backdrop in chapters 1 through 39, the major player on the scene, the great threat over the Fertile Crescent, is the Assyrian Empire. But by the time you get to 40, all of a sudden Assyria seems to disappear. And instead, the great shadow cast over God's people is the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon is explicitly addressed in chapters 43 and 46 and 47 and so on. Isaiah has been preparing us for this switch. Two weeks ago, Wayne preached on chapters 36 and 37 when the great Assyrian threat literally knocked on the door of Jerusalem under the emperor Sennacherib. And then last week, we looked at how that same king who was faithful then during the threat of the, the, the Assyrian assault, Hezekiah, then faltered critically with the Babylonians. But 36 and 37 and 38 and 39 are not in historical order. Isaiah has deliberately switched them up. Sennacherib invades Jerusalem after the Babylonian envoys came to Jerusalem seeking a, an anti-Assyrian pact with Judah. But Isaiah switches it up to prepare the scene for the coming Babylonian exile. And this is the dominant theme for the rest of our book. Not just Babylon, he also mentions the Persian Empire way out in the distance. He speaks of a man from the east who will come and bring Judah back into the land. He even gives him the name Cyrus the Great. Cyrus II, as he's known in secular history. But here's a picture of what the staff recommended we do a, uh, 
historical graph. So here we go. We got it. Yeah. So you can't see that very. I have a laser pointer. <laughs> so this is the cat's. We got to have a laser pointer for my cat. Um, but I thought I'd use it. Um, so here's, here's this, the gray is Isaiah's, that's his lifetime, from 740 to 701, roughly. That's not his lifetime, but his ministry. It goes from kind of the southern kingdom is, is in the red. That's Judah. There's Hezekiah. The northern kingdom disappears after 722 when uh, Sargon II obliterates it. You can see there's Sennacherib when he attacks Jerusalem in about 701, and Hezekiah is faithful. And then you see the Babylonian Empire over here. And there's the great Nebuchadnezzar who will be the one who destroys Jerusalem and raises the temple. And then all the way to the right, you'll see the Persian Empire led by Cyrus. If you can see the timeline, this is a whopping... What Isaiah is speaking of in these chapters is 150 plus years after his own lifetime. That's why many think this couldn't have been written by Isaiah. But of course, there's no reason to believe that a prophet can't speak of events far beyond his lifetime. <laughs> and with that, this means the prophet is writing a prophecy to a yet future generation from the 8th century, his original contemporary context, all the way into the 6th century BC. And what he's doing is he's using his past faithful proven ministry, his, fa his past predictions that have come true as a, as a grounds for confidence for his even more distant future predictions for a yet future generation to believe, to trust. And what is this future word for this future generation of God's people? It's really good news. It's really good news. To give us some context of how important this news was, I want us to think back to, not that long ago, the, the Holocaust. Some of you read this in high school. Elie Wiesel's book, Ninth. Remember that? In that book, he gives a harrowing first-hand account of the, the German death camps. And in one particularly painful scene, a, a scrawny boy is hung from the gallows. But he is too light. And to the horror of all who are forced to watch, he slowly suffocates. And as he writhes in these merciless pangs, someone cries out, where is God? And the voice from within young Ely answers, he's there, hanging from the gallows. Philosophically, the idea of the death of God uh, finds its probably most famous work in Friedrich Nietzsche. He wrote, God is dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned? has bled to death under our knives. Nietzsche may have made the death of God famous, but he was not the first to discuss this idea. Before him, another philosopher named George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, that's four names, wrote of God's death as a pervasive sense of dread, uh, an experience of the loss of God in the world. Here's what he writes. He describes it as the abyss of nothingness, the feeling on which rests modern religion, the feeling that God himself is dead, the feeling which was uttered by the great Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal when he wrote, nature is such that it marks everywhere, both in and outside of man, a lost God. 
You ever feel like God is lost? In the wilderness of the world, fallen, silent, unseen, vanished from the horizon. More recently, a Palestinian Christian and a leader pastoring in the Gaza Strip named Muther Isaac preached this. We prayed. We prayed for our people's protection and God did not answer us. Not even in the house of God were church buildings able to protect them. Our children fall before the silence of the world and before the silence of God. How difficult is the silence of God? Today we cry out with the psalmist, my God, my God, why did you leave Gaza? How long will you forget her completely? Why do you hide your face from her? In the daytime I call upon you, but you do not answer. By night we find no rest. We search for God on this land. But where is he? After Jerusalem fell in 586, the people of Israel wondered the same thing. Is God lost forever? Perhaps he's dead. Maybe the Babylonian gods won. We have been rejected forever. This is not a modern experience. It is the experience of the fallen world. And into this desolate and darkening wilderness, all of a sudden, chapter 40, God appears. And he speaks. And what does he say? Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Says your God, you are still my people and I am still your God. And my heart to you is comfort. It's comfort. Your hardship is coming to an end. Your iniquity is pardoned. Do you believe that God's heart toward you is comfort? John Calvin wrote, No one will ever reverence God except he who is confident God is favorable toward him. We can fear God in many ways, we can act to reverence him, but we cannot revere him in our hearts if we do not believe his heart towards us is favor and grace and comfort. And the good news specifically consists in this, the king is coming to this desolation, into this wasteland of Babylonian exile, of, a, of the burnt, charred remains of Solomon's temple, God is coming. Amid Zion's desolation, one commentator writes, despair and in doubt, the voice is calling for the audience to be spiritually ready for the coming of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground will become level, the rough places a plain, for the glory of Lord, the Lord shall be revealed. This is not preparing for the exiles to return, it's preparing for God to return. The New Testament tells us that this voice crying out is ultimately fulfilled in John the Baptist, who prepares the way of Jesus, Emmanuel, God who is with us. And a people who were back in the land but still living in the desolation and despair 
of the Roman Empire's thumb over them. I want to be clear, our repentance that's being called for here to prepare ourselves for the coming of God, and this is what John the Baptist preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repentance is not the condition of his coming. He's coming anyway and anyhow. Our repentance is simply the only sane response to the fact that he is coming. The kingdom of God is near. Prepare your hearts. The king is almost here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How then should we respond? Who can but reorient their entire lives around this brilliant reality, this, this shining hope that God is among us? The glory of the Lord, John the Evangelist says, we beheld it. The glory of the only begotten. Have you beheld the glory of Christ? On Mount Tabor, only three, Peter, James, and John, saw his unveiled glory. And were told to keep it to themselves for the moment. But on Golgotha, the whole world saw the paradoxical glory of the mystery of Christ crucified. Muther Isaac, the Palestinian pastor, asked, where's God found in this land? His answer, he's under the rubble of Gaza. That sounds an awful lot, lot like Wiesel's answer. There he is, hanging from a noose, a dead God. But the gospel of the crucified Christ is not despair or cynicism. It is filled with awe and hope. There is God on the cross dying for our sins. He hangs there not as a victim, for no one takes his life from him. He lays it down freely for us. He hangs there not as victim as much as victor, who takes his life back from the cold ground of Golgotha, the blood-drenched dirt of Auschwitz, the bleak rubble of Gaza, to rescue us from the wilderness and desolation of our world and of our own lives. God displays his overwhelming beauty before us in the death of Christ, for us and his defeat of our death in rising from the grave for all with our eyes to see and ears to hear this good news is enduring verses 6 through 8 a voice says cry and I said what shall I cry all flesh is grass it's beauty like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it it just shrivels it's the same language that's used later in chapter 40 verse 24 of, gr of great leaders and kings of the earth. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root when he blows on them and they wither. Here's what this means. God's good news outlasts, outshines, outproves all man's bad news. And there's lots of bad news and lots of bad men and bad women who bring destruction and desolation, who create wilderness and gardens. And all their bad news is terrifying and overwhelming. But God's good news outshines, outlasts, and outproves it. But we need to cling to it. Which means we need to hear it. We need Isaiah to preach it to us. Thank you, Isaiah, for saying, here I am, send me. I'll go. I alone saw your glory, but soon all the earth will see your glory. And they'll see it in part through our preaching so Isaiah goes and he preaches, and then he asks Zion to do the same, right? That's what he says in verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Get going, people of God. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear these promises from each other. We need to be gospeled over and over again. I need it in my small group. I need to hear it in your voices when we sing these songs together. I need to hear these promises because I'm overwhelmed by the bad news in the world, in my own flesh, and the devil. I need to hear good news over and over, these promises of God that outlasts all the bad. And then he calls us to preach to the world. Are we gospeling our neighbors? Who's our neighbor? You know, there's an experimental Wiccan witch who was recently interviewed by NPR, and she explained her occult pursuit in these words. She says, during COVID, and I think in general as I got older, I was drawn to the idea of a self-directed religion that promised me a way to have some control over the universe. I think increasingly we find ourselves facing things that really affect us deeply and we have very little control over. Climate change, housing prices, health insurance bills, pandemics, who's going to become the president? And here's this religion, this spirituality, that says you can have an effect on these things that feel so much bigger than you. You just need a couple of candles and some willpower. She concludes with this. If I'm really honest, I was tired of God being dead. I don't want to feel like I didn't care about the divine anymore. This image-bearing soul longs for God. Are we preaching to her? Are we sharing the good news of the gospel her soul longs for? We are called to give hope to the hopeless. What do we preach? The beauty of the Lord revealed in Christ. How do we preach it? Simple. We enjoy him wholeheartedly and invite others to enjoy him too. Look, the world is filled with evangelism, with people expressing their own good news and inviting others into it. As C.S. Lewis writes, men spontaneously praise whatever they value, and so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it's marvelous? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses our joy, it completes it. So, are you enjoying Christ? Is this the song of your heart? Then you can't but share it, right? But it helps sometimes to have something to grasp onto. I'll just share this as a very practical, short application point. But one practice we can begin to do, if we're not already doing, is reading Scripture in the mornings, just alone, by ourselves, with the Lord. But maybe asking ourselves to get beyond ourselves some questions of what God might have me share from what I'm learning. So here's three questions that the staff discussed at our last staff meeting. One, as I read the Bible prayerfully, what is the Lord telling me or encouraging me with? Two, what does the Lord want me to share out of what I learned? very simple. And three, who does God want me to share this with today, this week? Well, let's look more at this good news because it gets better. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules with him. His reward is with him. He's bringing justice. The Lord's arm is his strength to establish his reign and establish righteousness in an unrighteous, broken, and unjust world. 
This is how Isaiah will later put it in chapter 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring good news of happiness, who says to Zion, your God reigns. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see. God is able to establish his good news, to make it true. But it's not just that his arm is strong, his arm is gentle. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. With that same mighty arm that he pulverizes evil, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. Behold your God, so mighty, so gentle, so powerful and so kind. And so when Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown, to inaugurate his public ministry, here's what he proclaims. It's on the screen. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is a mic drop moment. What good news you and I get to proclaim. Jesus first preaches it to us. And we have the ability to proclaim liberty for the captives. Good news for the poor. Hope for the hopeless. Why aren't we preaching this? What are we sitting on? This good news is so good because God is so great. Which is the second point. And this will be much faster. These last two points, you're looking at your watch going, wow, you're on point two? Great God. Verses 12 through 14 rehearses the, who, who, it's Job-like. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Like who is measured? Who is, right, these kinds of questions of his immensity and his eternality. Who taught God anything? Who taught him wisdom and insight? But then his infinite worth as such a perfect, infinite being is proclaimed in verses 15 and 17 about Lebanon. The nations are like a drop in a bucket compared to him. They are so, they're so forgettable next to God. Lebanon would, be, would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon was famous for its cedar forests. Because there's not nearly enough timber in all of Lebanon to, an, to be an accurate sa- a sacrifice or a sufficient sacrifice to our great God. And if all the beasts of all the fields of Lebanon were offered up in all the timber, it wouldn't be enough. There's only one sacrifice worthy of our mighty God. It was God himself hanging on a tree. For our sake and for his own glory. So we compare and despair with our idols. Verses 18 through 20. To whom will you liken God? An idol? You know, the the, the Wiccan witch I mentioned, she goes on to say this in the interview. She says, so I go and I set up this ritual to try and talk to a particular goddess. 
And I'm, I'm by myself in my office in Oakland. I'm sitting in front of an altar I've made out of a cardboard box. I have a stranger's playlist going on Spotify. My cat is on the other side of the door staring at me. And after about an hour, something ha happened. I just suddenly felt flooded with bliss. And after that experience, it became very difficult for me to continue to make fun of that part of myself that wanted to be connected with the divine. She's found a substitute. And before we laugh at her for her card bo cardboard box altar, what about the altars we set up in our own hearts? Ezekiel speaks of this. He says, the leaders of Israel have taken the idols and brought them into their hearts. They're not bowing down and worshiping a statue, but they're bowing down in their own hearts. And if you laugh at her, I hope you first laugh at yourself. We can spend so much of our lives chasing little comforts when God offers us infinite, everlasting comfort. Have we been duped into seeking first the right devices, the right cars, the right clothes, the right professional title, the prestigious position, that new house in the coveted neighborhood, the right attention from the right person? These are no less silly, not because they don't matter, they do, but simply because they are unworthy of your soul's devotion of your dearest hopes. How much more infinitely unworthy are they of God? And so 21 through 26, he invites us to compare and hope. God's greatness over civilization, right? He's, 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 he's sovereign over the rise and fall of emperors and empires. And then verse 26, he invites us to look up, to look at the stars. Have you done that recently? It's actually a great practice. Go outside and just look in the night sky where there's not too much light pollution. Just look up and hear God's instruction to Abraham. Look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. If you were to count all the stars just in our Milky Way, there's 100 billion stars. If you were to count a star a second, it would take you 3,000 years. What about all the stars in the universe? There are 200 billion trillion stars. <laughs> that is exactly the right response. <laughs> you know how long it would take you to count every star in the cosmos? 6.4 trillion years. That gives us some proper perspective, doesn't it? How mighty is our God? I call each one of them out by name. As he asked Job, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? I can. Looking up was the first act of sanity by Judah's great enemy, the dreaded tyrant of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And when he looked up to the stars and gained his sanity, what did he say? Again, it's on the screen from the book of Daniel. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Oh, were that true for so many global leaders. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him with who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. How powerful is this coming from the emperor of the known world, saying, I am not the emperor of the world. He is. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say, what have you done? What an image for Judah to see Nebuchadnezzar bow the knee. The great dreaded emperor feared the emperor. Now imagine this. Imagine Xi Jinping of China or Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah or the entire leadership of Hamas. Imagine every ayatollah, every sheikh, every imam and every mosque around the globe. Imagine all the gurus and all the pujaris and all of Hinduism. Imagine every monk from every school of Buddhism, every pundit among the modern atheists. Imagine every misguided cult follower and manipulative cult leader. Imagine every muddled cultural Christian, every corrupt pastor, every predatory priest bowing down before Christ and confessing his sovereign lordship to the glory of God the Father. All the world's leaders, imagine Netanyahu or President Erdogan, President Biden, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. Imagine the whole U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. Imagine all the United Nations all falling down before Christ in unfeigned and petrifying worship and with tears in their eyes and trembling lips confessing Jesus Christ is the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. My friends, this isn't a fantasy. It is the future. Whatever you fear, fears him more. That future is as sure as the eternal, immortal, all-powerful God before whom all the tyrants of the world will tremble. And what does this awesome sovereign hand hold out to us this morning? Comfort. Comfort, my friends. Comfort and strength. Because the promise seems little good to us if we don't feel we have the strength to inherit it, to receive it, to persevere to the end and enjoy its fulfillment. How will we who are tired, weary, discouraged, and honestly, often unstable people make it to God's promised end? He gives us grit and grace. He gives us grit and grace. Verse 27 ends with, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So often our exhaustion is rooted in despair. God doesn't see me. God doesn't care. My friends, the God who created Orion and Pleiades, who created the Milky Way, sees your life in atomic detail. And he cares. He is favorable toward you and specifically offers you his comfort. He gives strength to the p and power to the weak and tired. Are you discouraged this morning? Are you weary? You're a great candidate then for grace. <laughs> he loves to give strength to the tired. He loves to give grace to the weary, to give them grit and stamina to those who wait on the Lord. Imagine waiting at a dinner table and you've been hungry all day and, that, and a feast is coming. You've ordered exactly what you want and this restaurant's really good. And you're waiting, and you're waiting. And the table next to you got their order, and you're pretty sure you ordered before they did. <laughs> right. 
What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to sit at that table and wait on the feast, not get up and leave and go find some McDonald's, some fast food elsewhere. Wait on the feast. Maybe there's some saltines scattered around or for you olive garden types, there's some, there's some bread and, and salad. Just enough to sustain. But, but what God tells us is that as we wait for him to feast on him, he does strangely, secretly sustain us. And not just so we're holding on by our fingernails or the skin of our teeth, but so that we would have power in our waiting, in our exhaustion, we would have power to take flight. We'd have power to run to him. And so with that said, we're going to prepare our hearts to come to his table now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us this morning. We thank you for the promise of comfort. Prepare our hearts now to receive grace from your hand at these tables.